Silas Marner, episode three, with Katie Mosley. Hey. Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host Hannah Chapman. And I'm your host Lauren Burke. And this week is the third instalment of our Silas Marner read-along. We've discussed George Eliot's entanglements, we've argued for and against Silas Marner the masterpiece, we've discussed the novel in the context of a fairy tale and how Eliot is very intentional with the sympathy she dishes out. We left Silas having just found a mystery baby asleep in front of his fire and the body of a young woman in the snow. Lauren, what happens next? Well, it's all kicking off in chapter 13, which opens at a New Year's Eve party at the Red House. When not for the first time, as you'll remember, Silas Marner bursts into the room and scares the shit out of everyone, but especially Godfrey, who had been eyeballing Nancy. Dad Cass seems put out at this interruption, and Silas explains he came for the doctor, Mr. Kimball, who inherited his position and never actually studied medicine, sidebar. So he's a mister, <laughs> not a doctor. Oh, he knows some stuff. He knows some <laughs> stuff, though. Silas announces that he found a woman who he thinks is dead in the snow, and Godfrey, the lovely lad that he is, immediately frets that she might not be dead. That was an evil terror, an ugly inmate to have found a nestling place in Godfrey's kindly disposition. But no disposition is a security from evil wishes to a man whose happiness hangs on duplicity. Silas is encouraged to leave the child at the party, but he does not wish to be parted from her, saying, it's come to me and I have a right to keep it. Which is, okay, all right. Um, That shocks the ladies. Silas Mm -hmm. and Mr. Kimball then rush back to the stone pits, taking the baby with him. And Godfrey agrees to go and fetch Dolly Winthrop, who he takes to Marner's cottage. She encourages Godfrey to go back, worried that he's going to catch a cold. And when he doesn't, she assumes it's because he has a tender heart. And I liked liked that bit Mm -hmm. of it. Um, because again, we're talking about like his intentions, his actions and how it's perceived. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's like, what a great guy. No, we know the truth. Mm -mm. So he sees this scenario as a crossroads. If Molly is dead, he'll marry Nancy and be good. And if not, well, then everything's ruined. Mm -hmm. So he's not sure which way it's going to go right now. While Godfrey is waiting outside, Mr. Kimball comes out and confirms that, in fact, Molly is dead and she has been dead for hours. He also confirms that she's a vagrant woman with long black hair and wearing rags and a wedding ring. So, you know, who else could it be? Godfrey insists on going to have a look at her, though. Just to make sure she's dead. (laughs) Just got to make sure. He's like, I don't want to celebrate. Just give her a little slap. Yeah. Pinches the toe. (laughs) Gotta check. He cast only one glance at the dead face on the pillow, which Dolly had smoothed with decent care. But he remembered that last look at his unhappy, hated wife so well 
that at the end of 16 years, every line in the worn face was present to him when he told the full story of this night. And then he looks at his child. The wide open blue eyes looked up at Godfrey's without any uneasiness or sign of recognition. The child could make no visible, audible claim on its father, and the father felt a strange mixture of feelings, a conflict of regret and joy, that the pulse of that little heart had no response for the half-jealous yearning in his own, when the blue eyes turned away from him slowly and fixed themselves on the weaver's queer face, which was bent low down to look at them, while the small hand began to pull Marna's withered cheek with loving disfiguration. Godfrey asks Silas what he means to do with the child, and when Silas insists on keeping her, I feel like the child really isn't gendered until Godfrey says her. Is yeah, that right? it was it was hard when I was writing the notes for it because I'm pretty sure up until that moment, it's it or it's like it. it's the child, it's gender neutral. Yeah, and then Godfrey says, "Are you going to keep her?" And I was like, oh, he's outed himself because he said that it's a girl and no one ever questions it. And then from that point, Mm. it's like, she said she did. And I was like, oh, Hmm. because that's interesting. The the mystery of Silas Marner, the mystery novel version of it is there. It's totally there. It just needs a little tweaking. (laughs) I know. I know. Um, Godfrey then gives half a guinea towards clothes everyone's like oh my god what a great guy what a good guy and uh, as he leaves Mr. Kimball asks why he rushed out in his dress shoes and fancy stockings and wonders if he had a fight with Nancy what's going on with you and Nancy and Godfrey leans into this completely and goes one step further saying he was up to dance with one of the Miss Guns next and wanted to escape what a guy the prevarication and white lies which a mind that keeps itself ambitiously pure is as uneasy as a great artist under the false touches that no eye detects but his own, are worn as lightly as mere trimmings when once the actions have become a lie. He returns to the white parlour in the red house with dry feet and a lighter heart than he left with. The only thing that could betray him now is Dunsey, if Dunsey comes back. So yeah, he might might get away with this, guys. (laughs) And when events turn out so much better for a man than he has had reason to dread, is it not a proof that his conduct has been less foolish and blameworthy than it might otherwise have appeared? When we are treated well, we naturally begin to think that we are not altogether unmeritorious and that it is only just we should treat ourselves well and not mar our own good fortune. Where, after all, would be the use of confessing the past to Nancy Lameter and throwing away his happiness, nay, hers? For he felt some confidence that she loved him. As for the child, he would see that it was cared for. He would never forsake it. He would do everything but own it. Perhaps it would be just as happy in life without being owned by its father, seeing that nobody could tell how things would turn out And that, is there any other reason wanted? Well then, that the father would be much happier without owning the child. Okay, so two things. Chapter 14 is long, Mm -hmm. but it is my favourite chapter in the book. So I did struggle to summarise it a little bit because I just love all of the scenes 
and the interaction so much. I was like, oh, this is a good quote and this is nice, but you just have to read it. So Silas deciding to keep the little orphan girl ends up being as much of an event in Ravelo as his vanishing money. Like Everybody is talking about it. That softening of feeling towards him, which dated from his misfortune, that merging of suspicion and dislike in a rather contemptuous pity for him as lone and crazy, was now accompanied with a more active sympathy, especially amongst the women. Notable mothers, who knew what it was to keep children whole and sweet, lazy mothers, who knew what it was to be interrupted in folding their arms and scratching their elbows by the mischievous propensities of children just firm on their legs, were equally interested in conjecturing how a lone man would manage with a two-year-old child on his hands and were equally ready with their suggestions. The notable chiefly telling him what he had better do and the lazy ones being emphatic in telling him what he would never be able to do. Of all the mothers offering Silas help and advice, it's Dolly Winthrop who's the most like actively helpful person. Mm -hmm. When Silas shows her the half guinea that was given to him by Godfrey, she's like, no, you don't need that much. Just buy her some shoes. I've got some clothes from Aaron that she can wear. The child is going to grow like the grass in May. Mm -hmm. Just a waste of money. So she brings these clothes over to Mana. They are well used and they are patched, but they are very clean. Silas thanks her but makes it clear that while he is very much open to her advice, he is the one making the decisions. He is responsible for the child. He wants her to be fond of him and not just become fond of someone else and, you know, lose her that way. Mana took her on his lap, trembling with an emotion mysterious to himself, at something unknown dawning on his life. Thought and feeling were so confused within him that if he had tried to give them utterance, he could have only said that the child was come instead of the gold, that the gold had turned into the child. He took the garments from Dolly and put them on under her teaching, interrupted, of course, by baby's gymnastics. One thing that Dolly does insist on is that Silas should have the little girl christened. And he doesn't immediately know what the term means because he is more familiar with like the baptism of adults and not the christenings of children. And Silas acknowledges that things are done very differently in Ravelo than what he's used to. But because he wants to do right by the, the child, that means doing right by the child in her community, which is this yeah. village. And he is able to recognise like she's going to grow up here we've got to do things the Ravelo way, which obviously delights Dolly. But then when she's like, what are you going to call her? He's like, oh, Hepzibah, after my mum. And she's like, "Mm, that's a hard name. And he's like, oh, it's my sister's name. Bearing in mind, both of these women are dead. Yeah. His mum and his sister. He's like, oh, we did call my sister Epi. And like, so it's fine. She's like, great, go with that. Yeah, lean into, lean into Epi. So Silas goes to the Ravelo church for the very first time and he has Epi christened and they both start to go to church. They join the community. The gold had kept his thoughts in an ever-repeated circle, leading to nothing beyond itself. But Epi was an object compacted of changes and hopes that forced his thoughts onward and carried them far away from their old eager pacing towards the same blank limit. 
carried them away to the new things that would come with the coming years, when Epi would have learned to understand how her father Silas cared for her, and made him look for images of that time in the ties and charities that bound together the families of his neighbours. The gold had asked that he should sit weaving longer and longer, deafened and blinded more and more to all things except the monotony of his loom and the repetition of his web. But Epi called him away from his weaving and made him think all its pauses a holiday, reawakening his senses with her fresh life, even to the old winter flies that came crawling forth in the early spring sunshine and warming him into joy because she had joy. Life with Epi pulls Silas away from his loom, not only back into his community, but into the outdoors, into the fields, and there he finds himself reconnecting with his past and his memories in a way that he hasn't allowed himself to for years. As the child's mind was growing into knowledge, his mind was growing into memory. As her life unfolded, his soul, long stupefied in a cold, narrow prison, was unfolding too, and trembling gradually into full consciousness. By the time Epi is three, she is getting into all sorts of mischief. Dolly tells Silas that punishment would be good for her, and recommends that he shut her into the coal hole, or spank her. One day, despite Silas tying her to the loom with a length of linen, Epi gets out of the cottage and disappears. She, like, uses his scissors. She's obsessed with... I like the fact that... She knows that the scissors are naughty because Dolly's like, never go near these scissors before she ever has. And then mm-hmm. she's like, okay, I'll go near them. <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. cuts herself free. So she gets out, she disappears, and this stresses Silas out because he cannot find her. You know, he's got that terrible eyesight. Mm-hmm. She's small, she's run off. And he's, he's like, oh God, she's fallen into the stone pit and drowned. Yeah. But she Gone didn't. Right to the worst possible scenario. Every, is... People are obsessed with this stone pit. Like, it's just yeah. a menace. Well, it's looming. It's looming. Uh, he finds her just, like, playing in a puddle, you know, using her boot as a bucket. And remembering Dolly's advice, he's like, I'm going to put you in the coal hole. And then he takes her home <laughs> and he puts her in the coal hole. And it, do- it doesn't do anything. Because... No. You know, one, she's covered in soot, so he's got to go and, like, wash her off and change her clothes. And then the minute she goes back into the room, she's, like, back in the coal hole. Yeah, so that was fun. He's just like, you know what? I don't think punishment is for me. (laughs) I ain't going to do it. He certainly can't bring himself to hurt the the little girl. So he's Mm. just like, that's it. So Epi is just reared without any punishment whatsoever. What he does do is he takes Epi with him everywhere he goes and finds that the world, which once treated him like a useful gnome, is opening up. People are interested in her, they're interested in him for taking care of her, and they invite him to sit down and talk a while. And the children who were once scared of him stop being afraid. She really, like, softens his image. Mm -hmm. And he begins to think of Ravelo life entirely in relation to Epi, and he listens to his neighbours so that he can understand better what Ravelo life is. The disposition to hoard had been utterly crushed at the very first by the loss of his long-stored gold. The coins he earned afterwards seemed as irrelevant as stones brought to complete a house suddenly buried by an earthquake. 
The sense of bereavement was too heavy upon him for the old thrill of satisfaction to arise again at the touch of the newly earned coin. And now something had come to replace his hoard, which gave a growing purpose to the earnings, drawing his hope and joy continually onward beyond the money. Now, the good news is that chapter 15 is way shorter and takes us back to my favorite fuckboy, Godfrey Cass. Now, because he didn't admit to having married Molly or being Eppie's father, he cannot be seen to favor her. So he limits himself to small gifts to Marner because, you know, he's flying under the radar. Godfrey is mostly unbothered by her being raised by Silas since Eppie seems, you know, healthy and happy. Besides, he's busy with other things right now, like marrying Nancy Lameter. And when he sees Nancy playing with children, he thinks to himself that he will one day do something for his own child, as is his duty. Okay, so I know that you think that we should stop there, Hannah, because of the time jump. But I don't know, I think we can fit in one more chapter this week. What do you think? Yeah, I think let's do chapter 16. All right. So chapter 16 leaps forward in time by 16 years. The church bells are ringing and Godfrey Cass now is in his early 40s. He leaves church with his still very beautiful wife, Nancy. Note, Godfrey is Mr. Cass, not Squire Cass like his dad. Uh, While time has done little to Mr. and Mrs. Cass, the change in Silas and Eppie is very noticeable. Though Silas has lost his vague gaze, he looks much older than his 50 years with his white hair and bent back. And Epi is now a young woman of 18. She walks by his side and she's got auburn ringlets that are barely contained in her bonnet. Epi announces that she'd like a little garden. And young Aaron, Dolly Winthrop's son. Remember Aaron and his Carol? Yeah. He's all grown up now. And he offers to dig it for them because he's fully in love with Epi. He even offers to bring them cuttings from the garden he works in. Though Silas makes him promise that he won't be taking any liberties in doing this. But Aaron assures him that it's only stuff that would be thrown away. So it's all fine. I would like an Aaron to bring me like rich people's cuttings, (laughs) by the way. That'd be great. Like, Aaron, what do you got? What do you got in that hothouse over there? Yeah. Silas is like, no, don't be a bother. And you would be like, Aaron. It's getting thrown out. (laughs) Go and get me. I I don't want the trimmings. The, the most expensive bush. And I want you to like propagate it for me. I just want to be able to yeah. put it in the ground. Yeah. Dig it up. Dig up the whole thing. Uh, someone has been doing that in my garden with certain certain plants of mine. Oh, really? Yeah. John and I have been talking about putting a camera out there. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. They agree that Dolly is going to come round to stone pits first and advise them. And on that note, Aaron then heads off home. Epi announces that she knew... He would help her with her garden. How did you know that, Eppie? Did you know that he's in love with you? <laughs> they arrive home to the cottage, which has also been changed. There is now a dog and a cat and a kitten, and it's full of like nice furniture, courtesy of Godfrey Cass. And it's worth noting, too, that in all these years, he has never managed to save up like another hoard of money. Mm. Um, this is for a few reasons. Less and less flax is being woven in favor of cotton coming from the Americas. And um, the most obvious one is, you know, yeah, he's got a kid now. So Mm. 
He has less time to focus on weaving. And also, you know, he is getting older and physically it's becoming more challenging to do so. Silas sat down now and watched Eppie with a satisfied gaze as she spread the clean cloth and set on it the potato pie, warmed up slowly in a safe Sunday fashion by being put into a dry pot over a slowly dying fire as the best substitute for an oven. For Silas would not consent to have a grate and oven added to his conveniences. He loved the old brick hearth as he had loved his brown pot. And was it not there when he had found Epi? The gods of the hearth exist for us still, and let all new faith be tolerant of that fetishism, lest it bruise its own roots. Silas has taken up smoking a pipe. He's just becoming like an old, a little old man. Um, on the advice of his neighbors, even though he really doesn't enjoy it, the idea is that it will help with his cataleptic seizures. And while there's no evidence that this will work, he doesn't really seem to have any or many seizures since finding Epi, right? So mm. that's interesting. Yeah, there's definitely no further ones mentioned in this section. Yeah. Or like, and there's no reference to any happening like in the time jump. It's just not mentioned in this set of chapters. Yeah. Like I almost forgot about it. And I was like, okay, Elliot, what are we doing here? We also learn that Silas has been talking about his past with Dolly Winthrop quite a bit, which actually no surprise because Dolly and Silas seem to hang out all the time, these two. Uh, one of the things that they talk about is why he left Lantern Yard and Dolly says that she can't quite get her head around Lantern Yard and how they determined Silas was guilty. But you know what? If it never happened, then Silas would have never have ended up in Ravelo with Epi. So... Silas acknowledges that Epi is the silver lining to his suffering. Speaking of Epi, it's important to note that Silas has always been transparent with her. And this is going to come up again next episode. So Silas has told her all about his past and how the two of them ended up together. And he's even given her Molly's ring. Um, he's never claimed to be her father or anything like that. He's always been open and honest and respectful of her. And, you know, because of his love for her, She's very happy with how everything worked out. Perfect love has a breath of poetry which can exalt the relations of the least instructed human beings. And this breath of poetry had surrounded Epi from the time when she had followed the bright gleam that beckoned her to Silas's hearth. Outside the cottage, Silas and Epi discuss garden plans and notice that the water in the stone pit is going down. Silas explains that it's being drained on purpose to water the nearby fields. Remember that. And then out of the blue, Epi starts talking about marriage and uh, asks Silas if she could wear her mother's ring if she were to get married. And Silas is like, wait, who's been talking about marriage? And she's like, come on, it's Aaron. We know this. Um, the chapter ends on a very sad note, however, Silas is upset at the thought of losing Epi, despite her explaining that Aaron would never part them. He wants them all to live together as one big happy family. Silas, though, is forced to acknowledge that he won't be able to take care of Epi forever. And they agree to talk it through with Dolly, who arrives with Aaron just in time. Yeah, it's weird that Dolly is like just still married to this other guy that's never mentioned. <laughs> I know. I'm rooting for them. I was thinking that she would be a widow at some point. I guess we'll find out. And then, yeah. 
So actually, that is the perfect place to stop, I think, because last week we left Silas after he's just found Epi on the brink of his life changing. And now we're leaving him on the brink of another major change, which is losing her to Aaron, losing his gold all over again, you know, and we just have to see how he's going to take it. Mm hmm. That's true. So surprise, surprise, we do have another essay to discuss this week. This one is called Silas Marner and the Wordsworthian Child by Robert H. Dunham. Now, I will admit, it struggled a little with this essay because I am not familiar with the romantics. Like, definitely not as familiar as you are, Lauren, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners know more about them than I do. But I was immediately intrigued when I read the line, Wordsworth presence so infuses Silas Marner that one well acquainted with him almost imagines portions of it dictated to the author by the spirit of the poet. The essay goes on to explain that Eliot herself believed that only someone who completely shared her vision like Wordsworth would understand the novel. And actually, you might have noticed that the title page includes a quote from William William Wordsworth's Michael that reads... A child, more than all other gifts the earth can offer to declining man, brings hope with it and forward-looking thoughts. One thing I know about the romantics is that Wordsworth and like Coleridge and all of the children were together up mm-hmm. at Grasmere. Is that right? I think yeah. you told me that. Yeah. Yeah. For various reasons. You know, some, some men were better fathers than others. <laughs> There's that. Um... It's interesting uh, that she's putting herself in conversation with Wordsworth here. And I do think that, yeah, it is like it's very Wordsworthian prose. Mm. All of those sort of like pastoral descriptions. And yeah, I can see that she's like a fangirl. Um, The full title for that Wordsworth piece is Michael, a pastoral poem. And I feel like we could give Silas Marner like the subtitle like of, you know, a pastoral fairy tale. Yeah. Elliot's definitely doing a thing by referencing Michael. I'm not mm. exactly sure what she's up to. Because um, <laughs> I, I never know what George Elliot's up to, right? Like, this is, I'm not an Elliot expert. I don't know where but her head's ever at. Who is? Right? I feel like the subtitle <laughs> of Bonnets at Dawn could just be like, Bonnets at Dawn, we're not 100% sure what George Elliot is up to. We need more English degrees, apparently. I think <laughs> that's where I'm going with her. Um, <laughs> There is a thing, though, that's very interesting, Um, and that is that Michael is like the inverse of Silas Marner. Right. So the child in that story actually ushers in, I mean, essentially like a financial downfall. Oh. Um, So like maybe it's sort of an alternate version of Michael or just showing a different way that the story can go. Or maybe, probably. She just really liked that quote. And it's less about Michael and more about her bringing Wordsworth into the conversation because she wants to, you know, talk about the Wordsworthian child or the romantic child. And my basic understanding of this is that before the romantic era, children were more or less thought of as, you know, little adults. And the romantics like Wordsworth and Blake came in and sort of invented our modern ideas about childhood and development. So that is essentially what she's, you know, referencing here in Silas Marner. 
Dunham's essay also points out that people who can't recognise the Wordsworthian ideals at work in Silas Marner's relationship with Epi might recognise the transformation that happens to him as magical. Yeah. And I was like, zing, that's me. <laughs> I was like, I really do think this is like a fairy tale. Um, it just, I was like, yeah, it makes sense that people generally like children and would be nice to Epi. And that in being nice mm-hmm. to Epi, Silas and the village would slowly increase their bond. I don't know. Like it, yeah. The essay made me feel like an idiot for not being like, oh, this is a Wordsworthy and ideal. Like I really was just taking it all <laughs> at face value. And... I will add to that that I think like most of the essays I read about this book were written in the 70s. Like there was definitely a big jump in scholarship around Silas Marner in the late 70s and then maybe not so much since. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dunham later says in the essay that Wordsworth's preoccupation with childhood is neither sentimental or aggressive. It is both forward looking and backward glancing. It assumes that our adult moral and mental lives are rooted in and nourished by our early experience. A child's first affections must be preserved in the adult, else he withers spiritually and lives a dead and fragmented fragmented existence. I have been in therapy (laughs) enough years to know that I do agree with that statement in so much that I believe our earliest relationships deeply impact our mental health and our mental mm-hmm. well-being and our resilience. And that it makes me think of that scene where Dolly encourages Mana to dress Epi himself so that he can say to her, like, I've always been the one to take care of you. And how mm-hmm. that falls in such stark contrast to um like Epi doesn't cry because growing up yeah. with her mum she knows that crying is not going to get you a response. She's not going to be comforted. And so, mm-hmm. again, Elliot is just like, it's it's important that Epi is where she is. Her life, it's not just Silas's life that has improved. Like, Epi's life is so much better than it would have been had she been at home. Mm-hmm. And all of, all of that stuff, it just, it does feel really modern and relevant, I think. Not so much like the, it's your like your spiritual existence that withers but like the conversations we're now having about mental health and like how your childhood impacts it I think is like a really there's so much of that happening in Silas Marner they just don't have like the language we have to talk about it yeah now yeah absolutely I agree yeah it does it and I think um actually I mean I know right like Elliot's trying to write a, sh- a short story because she's working on Romola on the side. Like she's yeah. deeply involved <laughs> in that sort of mess. Um, and kind of to this point is for me where Silas Marner actually might fall short because I think actually young adult Effie exploring this would be very interesting, right? Mm. We have, I like the sort of the conclusion we've come to with young Epi. Um but I think all of this would have a big impact on her as a young woman. Mm-hmm. And George does kind of move that along. She moves that along. And I, I think maybe in the next set of chapters, I, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more. Epi is definitely a supporting cast member. She doesn't become, 100%. like, even as an adult, she does not become, like, this I, This is, it's Silas Marner, so it's about mm-hmm. him. But it could, it could be Silas Marner and his mate Godfrey. Like that could be the hundred percent. 
So something I really appreciated about chapter 14 and this move into the second section of the novel is just how much nature imagery we're getting. Mm. So that pastoral. Yeah. So that is very words worthy in. And maybe that's the thing that's sort of complicating the narrator voice, right? Of her being like, let me just like infuse the spirit of Wordsworth mm. in this book. I don't know. Maybe she does this all the time, but but it is beautiful. I really actually love it. Here's here's a couple of quotes that I liked. And when the sunshine grew strong and lasting, so that the buttercups were thick in the meadows, Silas might be seen in the sunny midday or in the late afternoon when the shadows were lengthening under the hedgerows, strolling out with uncovered head to carry Epi beyond the stone pits to where the flowers grew, till they reached some favourite bank where he could sit down, while Epi toddled to pluck the flowers and make remarks to the winged things that murmured happily above the bright petals, calling Dad-Dad's attention continually by bringing him the flowers. Then she would turn her ear to some sudden bird note, and Silas learned to please her by making signs of hushed stillness, that they might listen for the note to come again, so that when it came, she set up her small back and laughed with gurgling triumph. Sitting on the banks in this way, Silas began to look for the once familiar herbs again, and as the leaves, with their unchanged outline and markings, lay on his palm, there was a sense of crowding remembrances from which he turned away timidly, taking refuge in Eppie's little world that lay lightly on his enfeebled spirit. And also... For fifteen years, he had stood aloof as from a strange thing, with which he could have no communion, as some man who has a precious plant to which he would give a nurturing home in a new soil, thinks of the rain and the sunshine and all influences in relation to his nursling, and asks industriously for all knowledge that will help him to satisfy the wants of the searching root, or to guard leaf and bud from invading harm. The shift towards nature imagery in chapter 14 is discussed in that Dunham essay as well, which says, Throughout her works, George Eliot employs the rooted plant metaphor exactly with this Wordsworthian meaning. Silas Marner is a wearied soul capable only of faint perception because he is withered. His roots in Ravelot are tenuous and barely nourished. And that Epi's arrival will cause the sap of affection to flow freely once again, accompanied by the regeneration of Silas's withered trunk and limbs. Another natural element to Eliot's writing in the set of chapters was the contrast of the <clears throat> the contrast to the mist and the blizzards of the theft and the arrival of Epi to the seemingly endless spring and summer of their days together. So much of the signposting happening with her use of the seasons and of the elements. So yeah, very like very romantic. Yeah, and when the story jumps forward that next 16 years we're just back into the autumn which is our cue that changes on the way again with this yeah. you know possible marriage for epi right we'll see some more of this natural imagery in the final set of chapters especially a certain someone's slowness to grow yeah looking at you goddess actually i think one of the one of the essays we've discussed a few times touched on how specific that 16 year time jump is 
In Genres of Work, The Folk Tale of Silas Marner, Susan Stewart says, Eliot brings the magical and cyclical aspects of fairy time against the grueling repetition of obsessive labour when she depicts Silas working 16 years of 16-hour days and then, at the onset of chapter 16, introduces a 16-year age gap in the story and the undescribed set of 16 years that is filled with Eppie's childhood. Stewart compares the monotony of Silas's weaving to a prisoner keeping track of time by marking strokes on the wall, and it is interesting that Elliot sets up that Silas is working less right before the time jump, like he's forgotten to mark the years, time is getting away from him, like mm-hmm. his weaving has, and then suddenly Eppie is grown up. And I think that just as an it's so beautiful like yeah he's he's wrapped up and then she's an adult so Mm -hmm. there's more story that we could have had there but actually for him as a parent i think it's yeah i think it's interesting stuart goes on to say that ravelo life is dependent upon an unthinking repetition that looks only to the past yet silas's catalepsy opens him to time and transformation his catalepsy frees him from the necessity of his unceasing labor and i guess we might go so far as to say that epi has freed him from his catalepsy as well because as we said earlier in the episode he he just doesn't seem to have any more seizures yeah, there is a beautiful quote in chapter 14 that I think really um, speaks to like time and parenting, uh, which he says that Epi was a creature of endless claims and ever growing desires, seeking and loving sunshine and living sounds and living moments, making trial of everything with trust in new joy and stirring the human kindness in all eyes that looked at her. That's all one sentence, too, by the way, George. <laughs> but um. A, a creature of endless claims and ever growing desires, I think, really speaks to like the roller coaster, too, that is parenting. Like, you never sort and like why it is so hard to track time. Like, I mm. feel like the last few, just like since Audrey started school, the last few weeks have just really gotten away from me um, because it's weird because you are on like such a time based schedule, but also like it's just going by so quickly and you. And there's always something else and like something more, yeah. and then the things get bigger and like. And I think especially, I mean, maybe it gets better. I don't know. But I can speak to like the early years, I think, too, with parenting. Like you feel like you've mastered something. You're like, oh, I've gotten into like the right rhythm or the right schedule. But then they grow and it changes Mm -hmm. or they start something else and it completely changes. So um, I don't know. That also made me think of that thing that they say about parenting. Like the days are long, but the years are short. Mm. And it's like the truest thing. It makes no sense, but it is the truest thing you'll ever hear. And we will, we'll talk a, a little bit about uh, Elliot's relationship with with parenting and and being a parent or not being a parent next week because mm-hmm. she wasn't. And so it's interesting to hear from a parent that her depiction of Silas being a parent is authentic. But I also, I think that might be one of the reasons that um, we don't get those sixteen years. Yeah. Because yeah, definitely, I think you know Elliot has seen and interacted with children, but she hasn't. She hasn't raised a child, and so it makes it does make sense for Epi to go from being like the image of a toddler, the Wordsworthian in child, to mm-hmm. to being an adult, all grown up, all grown yeah. up, yeah. And now, yeah, yeah, for sure. 
And that is all we have time for this week. Next week is our Silas Marner finale. So we're going to finish reading the novel and discuss some of our favorite adaptations. If you have thoughts on these adaptations or the book or anything at all, tell us. Tell us. You got to tell us. Get in that Facebook group and let us know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Hannah, where can people drop their thoughts? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, in English and Spanish, wherever you get your usual literary fix. Mm-hmm.